0: Today's sermon text is 1 Samuel 8:1 through 22 It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 230. Hear the word of the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders and And of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Will you pray with me? Oh, good Father, your word is open. Make it true of our hearts. Would you strip away everything in us that would resist your word? Give us a desire this morning to hear from you. And by your spirit, would you increase our longing to see Christ our Savior Even while your word is being preached. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to start off this morning uh, with a a question for the kids in the room. Um, Maybe a a, a little quiz. There's only one question. Uh, Have you ever seen that? This isn't the question, but have you ever seen The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe or have you read the book The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? See a lot of heads shaking. Yes, yes. So um, there's one character in the book at the very beginning. We're introduced to this character and this character is very snobby and very rude and very mean spirited and spiteful. The reader does not like this character at all. Can you think of who this might be? Edmund. Yes. Good job. I thought you were going to say the white witch and which I was prepared for. If you said that it was going to be fine. But it's Edmund. All right. So Edmund. Great job. So Edmund is this uh, is, is one of four siblings. And uh, and so we are introduced to him and we get frustrated with Edmund. If you've seen the movie or if you've read the books, you get frustrated with him because he's clearly selfish and he only thinks about himself. And then he meets the White Witch, and it becomes obvious to everyone else that the White Witch is leaving in her wake just ruin and disaster. And everyone can see it, except Edmund. He can kinda of start to see it, but it's not really, it's not really hammering home to him. And we watch with frustration as Edmund only cares about himself. And he ends up eating the Turkish delight, if you've read the book. And he wants to become the prince. And he scoffs at the talk about this Aslan, the true king of the land. And he ends up betraying his siblings and ultimately pledging allegiance to this wicked and false leader in an act that that we can call high treason. He was putting his hope and his security in the wrong person. And it's so frustrating to watch that or to read this. We can clearly see that the white witch is not trustworthy. And yet Edmund betrays the true king and pledges loyalty to a false king, a false ruler. And as a reader of the book, it's easy to see the folly of the choices of Edmund. And as the reader of First Samuel, it's easy to see the folly of the choices of the Israelites. And it's really easy to become hard to become Uh, Just frustrated with them or be hard on them. But as we'll see today. The Israelites high treason is not something that was only unique to them. We too have believed the lies of a terrible enemy and have relied on false kings and have rejected the good rule and reign of an omnipotent and kind king. We're going to look at this and take it basically section by section the first section uh, i 'm calling high treason verses one through nine high treason defined is the crime of betraying one 's country especially by attempting to kill the sovereign or overthrow the government and I can get to that we 'll get to that in a moment but before that, let's get to where we are in the story. A little bit of context. It's a, this is a new portion of the book and really the whole story of the, the children of Israel. It's an important transition for the children of Israel. Uh, it's known, the, the time that was known as the time of the judges is now passing. Chapter 8 is pivotal in the, in the nation of Israel. And it's coming now from the judges, time of judges now into the time of the kings. There was a very long period of time in Israel's history when they didn't have an official king. Some 400 years had gone by in the, in the promised land when they didn't have a king. As things would come up within, uh, within the nation, within the land, uh, that God would raise up judges among them when they uh, needed to deal with specific crises that were, that were taking place. And this section in chapter 8 is pivotal as we begin to see What's going what's going to happen with God bringing in kings uh, to to, uh, to lead the children of Israel. But in verses uh, one through three, we see Samuel, though beloved, uh, he seems to make a foolish decision here. His sons did not honor God. And it says that they turned aside after gain in verse three. Now, they were abusing their roles. They were abusing their positions to enrich themselves. And and Samuel actually is one character in all of Scripture. And even if you were to talk to a a Jewish person who's uh, just a devout Jewish person, they would probably tell you that Samuel's one of their favorites. Nothing ever bad is really said in the Scriptures about Samuel. It's This right here is pretty much the only time where it seems like he's being rebuked, but we never read about God rebuking Samuel. But I'd venture to guess that Samuel... If we were to be able to spend time with any of these Old Testament greats, then Samuel might be one of your favorites too. But Samuel was wrong when he did this. He put his boys who were not walking with the Lord in charge over God's people, and he let them rule over Israel. Now, I think it's a good question to ask, what should they have done? What should the elders have done when they saw this? Because this is not... uh, Really, on first pass, it doesn't seem like such a big deal. But what should they have done? They should have done exactly what Samuel did. They should have poured out their hearts to God. And Samuel heard their complaint and their request, and it bothered him. And he cried out to God. When the elders looked around and saw the nations looking in and Samuel's children were acting a fool, they should have done what Samuel did and go straight to God and say, God, we don't even know what to do. We're fearful for our nation. We're fearful for our safety. And all we have is you. Will you just tell us what to do? That's actually what it means to cast all of your cares on him. For he cares for you. But what did they do? At verses 4 and 5. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now this doesn't seem unreasonable in the first pass. I mean, I can imagine or assume a number of us in this room would have felt the same way. That these judges that have been placed over us are actually wicked judges. I don't know if you feel this way ever when you're looking at our own country's leadership. If you ever feel this way, all right, it's hard. It's that's maybe a really hard uh, transition, really hard jump for you. Long jump, but or maybe not. But this doesn't seem to be such a terrible idea. These judges were not trustworthy. They were selfish. They were dishonest men. And they're probably thinking they're just going to get us killed. So it seems on first pass, that the elders here are being pretty wise in coming to Samuel. And not only does it seem on first glance that they were being wise, but it also seems that they're being biblical. We're told in Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons and he actually prophesies that there would be a king that would come from his lineage, from Judah's lineage. And then in Deuteronomy 17, which they would have been familiar with, they would have had that. They would have had that to read. They would have put very possibly this to memory. In Deuteronomy 17, it predicts that the Israelites would one day have a king. So the idea of a king was not just something that was just the other nations were doing. And it was just kind of random. They actually were familiar and actually thought one day we will have a king. And so they could have pointed to the scriptures and said, see, Samuel, the Bible, our scriptures actually tell us. That one day we would have a king. God's words hold us that this day would be coming and this day is now. The elders actually are using the very same language of Deuteronomy 17:14. It says this, it says, when you come to the land that the Lord, your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, you will say, I will set a king over me. Like all the nations that are around me. And then it says, you may indeed set a king over you. So since their current leaders, Samuel's sons, were corrupt and since the Bible foresaw that this was coming, that this day was coming, it's hard to blame them for, for coming to Samuel and saying, would you just give us a king like the other nations? Can you blame them for looking for another alternative? Well, how are we to view this request? Well, the author of First Samuel, through the text, actually presents the Lord to us as what to think of their request. God himself actually helps us understand their request. This is essentially a religious reason for a godless pursuit. And they were committing what we would call high treason in verses four and five. In verse five, it says, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So what does this high treason look like? First of all, high treason, it looked like they forgot who they were. They forgot who they were. You see that phrase, like all the nations? They rejected God's calling on their life to be different. They wanted to be like all the nations. They wanted to be like them. When God brought them up out of Egypt, he told them, you were going to be my holy nation. Unlike all the other nations, for a purpose to bless the other nations, So they forgot who they were that part of forgetting who they were is they forgot their holiness. The refrain in the book of Leviticus, which they would have been familiar with, which these Israelites would have would have had was therefore be holy as I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Whenever spiritual leadership decays, as it did here in First Samuel. And wherever that may be, it could be in the church. It could be spiritual leadership is decaying in your household, in your family, or in your marriage. It could be spiritual leadership is decaying in your group of friends that you hang out with. And when that happens, you'll begin to look more like the world. And the uniqueness that, you intend, that God intended you to have will begin to fade away. So they forgot their holiness. They they forgot who they were. Part of that is they forgot their holiness. They also forgot their story. If you were to go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 through 40, we don't don't have time today to read it in its entirety, but I'll settle for uh, reading verses 32 through 34. I think it makes the point. So listen to this. It says, God is telling the children of Israel, it says, For ask now of the days that are past which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth and asked from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation, but by trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by deeds of great terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? They forgot what the Lord had delivered them from. I love that passage in Deuteronomy 4. He's saying, no one has ever conceived of anything like this. No one would ever believe this if this had not happened before your eyes. There was a God that gave verbs and adjectives. He was speaking to you. And he actually took care of all your enemies for you. Inexplicably, he, he took care of the enemies. Where only everybody who was watching could have said, well... It wasn't the Israelites. It must have been whoever their God is. They forgot what the Lord had delivered them from just a, a few chapters earlier. They forgot that the Lord had just wrecked shop in the Philistine camps by himself. In verses in chapters four through six, it's, it's crazy to think what all happened. The Philistines in chapter four slaughtered 30,000 Israelites. Because. The Israelites had kind of made the Ark of the Covenant kind of like a, a trinket and thought it was just a good luck charm. And God would not be trifled with that way. And so 30,000 Israelites were slaughtered by the Philistines. And then if that weren't enough to send Israel reeling in fear, the Ark of the Covenant is captured. Did the Ark have to be captured? Did God have to let the Ark of the Covenant be captured? No, he didn't. He let the Ark of the Covenant be captured. He allowed it. And then what happens is that this Ark goes on a, a tour of duty. And I don't know if that's the right phrase. It could be a terrible phrase. But he goes on this tour through the Philistine camps and through these villages. From city to city. And what does he do? He humiliates the Philistine gods. He terrorizes the Philistines everywhere that the Ark went. People tried to tear off the mercy seat to see what was inside of it. And a whole group of them died. We aren't told how many Philistines were killed on this tour of duty, but scholars believe there were thousands dead and thousands who were afflicted with tumors. And God did this with how many Israelites by his side? Not one. And then coming on the heels of this event, now granted, some years had passed. But we read only a few chapters later in verses 19 and 20, the highlights that they've forgotten their story and their God. Do you hear? Did you did you catch that when Jessica read that text? Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may may be like all the nations and that our king may judge for uh, judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The great irony is, is that he just did that. And they forgot all about it. They forgot what they had been delivered from. What about you? Have you forgotten God's call on your life to be different from the world around you? Have you forgotten that God has called you to have a different definition of success than the world's definition? Have you forgotten that God has called you to have a different type of purity in your conversations and in your speech? Have you forgotten that the way that you speak to referees or umpires is to be different than the world's way? Have you forgotten that your marriage is to look distinctly different from marriages that are in the world of unbelievers? Do you treat your spouses different than the standard that the world gives you or has the world rubbed off on you? From the things that you spend your money on to the things that you watch on TV, to the way you treat your boss or the way that you treat your employees, to the way that you spend your vacation days, to the way that you serve one another, rather than serving yourselves. Remember who you are and remember your great story of God's redeeming love for you. So their whole identity And their story should have been enough for them to stop their pursuit of worldliness and say, nope, not us. That may be how the other nations are living. That may be how the other nations are being protected, but not us. And that leads us to another problem, aside from their memory problem here. They sought to fix their brokenness by worldly pursuits. They sought to fix their brokenness by worldly pursuits. I won't spend too much time here, but they were rejecting this wise and gracious king who was ruling over them. Israel was looking for a structural problem to a spiritual, a structural solution to a spiritual problem. The problem was not their structure. It wasn't a leadership issue, though that was an issue. The problem was the heart of mankind was wicked. Yes, it's true that they were in desperate need of being rescued, but they failed to see that their rescue they needed was not so much from the outside dangers. Those those, those were clear and present, but the main rescue that they needed was from the dangers lurking within their hearts. How often do we consider that? We become painfully aware of our own sin. How often do we decide to pursue a system of behavior that would cover up or make up for how we've been living our lives? We need someone to rescue us from ourselves. We need someone to give us a new heart. And then after that, to deal with our hearts as we continue to try to mask our heart problems with systems of righteousness or keeping up appearances. Kids, uh, kids in the room, I have a, uh, 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 I guess, a game that I think would be pretty fun for you, because I played this with Hudson when he was little. And I thought about this as I was thinking about this story. Uh Hudson and I would go in, into the playroom and we would each build a fortress with Legos. Remember this? We'd build with fortress a fortress with Legos. And then we would get these little uh the little animals and army men and we would set them up around our fortress and inside the fortress and uh and so I would have mine and he would have his and then uh we would loft these stuffed animals over across the room and it would have to hit the other fortress and uh, the goal was to destroy the other fortress and destroy everything in sight. Right. So um, so there would be these flying puppies would just go going, not real puppies, but flying stuffed puppies or you know, these farm animals just flying through the air to destroy these uh, fortresses that we built up. And the person with the strongest fortress would often win. This is a picture of you in life. You're going to try to build for yourself just a fortress when you when you feel like you just need to. You don't you don't know where to turn to and perhaps you feel dangerous lurking or you're scared or you're sad or you're beginning to put your hope in something else. And you try to build something else up to protect you. I know this is going to happen to you because it happens to the adults in this room all the time. We we build up fortresses trying to hold up against powerful attacks because we all have a mortal enemy, and that's Satan. We do this, don't we, adults? We call it building up for ourselves a system of good works, and we hope that it will make us feel better, but we can never build a system or a fortress strong enough to hold beneath the weight of our sin. It will eventually come crashing down, and the weight of the world will come crashing down on us. Friends, we are in desperate need of a king, someone to rescue us, not from outside dangers lurking, but one who can come rescue us again and again from us. And so they committed high treason by forgetting their holiness, forgetting their story and seeking to fix their brokenness by worldly pursuits. And then lastly, at least for my purposes this morning, they looked to a false king for security. I hope you saw that in the text. That they looked to a false king for security. God tells Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. This is what was so heartbreaking. This was an abandonment of faith. Only one chapter earlier in chapter 7 verse 12, we read That they confessed and they cried out to the Lord and they said, thus far, the Lord has helped us. Or another translation is thus far, the Lord has been our deliverer. It's not explicitly stated at the time of the Exodus, but it was what every Israelite and every Egyptian knew. The God of the Israelites is a better king than the God of Egypt or Pharaoh of Egypt. God made it crystal clear that he was their king when the waters came crashing in on Pharaoh's army. Any shouts afterwards of the Lord reigns was kingdom language. And so pursuing false kings may have seemed wise in the moment like it, it did to the Israelites. And it may seem wise in the moment for us, but it's actually going to be to our undoing. And what a privilege it is to have the God of Israel, Yahweh. Providing for us, caring for us, protecting us. That's what the Israelites should have been saying. How often are we guilty of high treason? Whether through our short-term memory loss, forgetting who we are called to be, forgetting what God has done for us, trying to fix our brokenness by all sorts of techniques that will not hold up under the weight of sin, Pursuing false kings to save us from the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. This high treason brings about devastating results. Let's look at it again. It's verses 10 through 20. This section is called the cost of high treason. Before we get to this text, though, I want us to look together at Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 20. So if you don't mind, Mark. Where you are now, because we're going to come right back to 1 Samuel 8. But turn in your Bibles uh, to Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. If you have your hardback Bible, uh, the black one, it's on page 161. And let's look back at what God told them, that they would one day have a king, like all the nations around them. And God gives us a glimpse into what kind of king he would want them to have in Deuteronomy 17. So turn to Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. It says. When you come to the land that the Lord, your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and uh, silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, listen to this, it says when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests and it shall be with him and he shall read it in all the days of his life. That he may, may learn to fear the Lord His God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, He and his children in Israel. Do you see what kind of king the Lord had in store for his people? One that would live long in the kingdom. That they would be able to trust and rely on. Now let's see what kind of king they will get. And this is a result of their high treason. Flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Verse 11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. The first three words. He will take he will take let your eyes bounce with me in this text and this is the cost of high treason right false kings never give they only take so let your eyes bounce with me here verse 11 he will take your sons look at verse 13 he will take your daughters verse 14 he will take your land verse 15 He will take your tithes. Verse 16, he will take your servants. Verse 17, he will take a tithe of their flocks. And look at verse 17. Ultimately, look at the end of the verse. It says, and you shall be his slaves. They wanted a king to protect them. And all this king was hoping to do was take from them. He will accumulate for himself wealth and power. And we pursue these kings at our own peril. It says, "In that day, verse 18, look at verse 18, and in that day you will cry out, "Because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Your passion for substitutes for God only create deeper wounds in your heart. And only insecurities. To your own peril and to your own ruin. All your kings that you run to that are false kings, they will ruin you. They will they will not rescue you. And there'll be nowhere to turn, he tells them, and they will just keep taking and keep taking and keep taking from you. It's catastrophic. In 2010, there's this guy named Laszlo Hanyecz. He purchased two pizzas from Papa John's using 10,000 Bitcoin. Now, I don't even really know. I don't even know what I mean. I kind of know what a Bitcoin is, but it's just a mystery to me. 10,000 Bitcoin is currently worth over 280 million dollars. Can you imagine over the years it beginning to dawn on you? At one point it would have been, ah, man, I bought those two pieces for a hundred thousand dollars and it continues to wear on you. And you keep thinking about those pieces that you bought. And now it's I gave up $280 million for two pizzas from Papa John's, this would be catastrophic to one's psyche. But if we really knew what or who, rather, we were giving up for those things that we think will satisfy us or protect us, like paying $280 million for two pizzas, it pales in comparison to the trade-off that we make from the false kings that we choose over Yahweh, the true king. And when we pursue false kings, it takes everything away. Verse 18, and that day you'll cry out because of your kingdom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Your passion for your substitutes, for God only creates these wounds in your hearts. And these kings will not rescue you. And when you really think about the Israelites here, can you not see your own heart's deceitfulness? As Eric Raymond put it, he says, we run from salvation in Christ by running to salvation and created stuff. This is deadly. And we don't even realize when we're doing it. As Tim Keller pointed out, we have a tendency to elevate good things to an idolatrous level. He says this, he says, we appoint our spouses, our families, our friends, our careers, Bodies, finances, food, etc. As our functional saviors. But they cannot deliver. They cannot satisfy. All they do is leave us hungry and hurting. Isn't that true? I think if we could hear the stories in this room. We could hear story after story of people who have been hurt. By their own chasing after a false king. Stopping to follow after the one true king, the only God, and chasing after a false king who promised something great. But once you found out what it really was, it left you hurting. It could not satisfy you. And the sad thing is that our blindness, our stubbornness actually blinds us as it did the Israelites in verses 19 and 20. I mean, have you ever been resistant to any word that does not agree with your opinion? I know I have. But that brings us to what I believe is the good news in all of this. Verses 21 and 22. You say, where is the good news in all of this? It's God's sovereignty over our treason. Even in your rebellion, God is ruling over you. In verse 20, God tells Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. But you know what happened? God never stopped off, He never stepped off of His throne. He's always in charge. And for believers, we're told that He works all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. And that has to include, because all things would include even our rebellion. Against Him, our poor choices, our pursuit of idols, our forgetfulness of who we are and what God has done for us and what He saved us from. And what does He do? He says, give them what they want. Sometimes it's the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. This should remind us of Romans chapter 1. If you're familiar with Romans, Chapter one or the New Testament, you might be familiar where where it says that the wrath of mankind is being revealed from uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then it says then they they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And then it said several times, therefore, God gave them up. And multiple times it says that it's basically God saying, okay, you can have you can have it. What's that? That's God's wrath. What do you think was going on in heaven when they rejected him? He wasn't stepping off of his throne. He wasn't going anywhere. Even though they were rejecting him, God was still in charge. They were rejecting the rule of God, but they also could not escape it. Is there some place in your life that you are resisting the rule of God in? If so, let the Israelite, the testimony of Scripture, let them tell you that that's futile. God was still the ruling and reigning king, but they were choosing to resist his rule and his reign. And how are we doing that in our own lives? I think it's a grace of God if he would help us to see in this text this morning that he sovereignly allows us to see the bottom of the cistern. He allows you and me to pursue those things that will not satisfy us so that we will see that they will not satisfy us. His severe mercy allows you to pursue other kings and his mercy also bids that you see that it was a false king all along. His goodness welcomes you to come to him for true and lasting satisfaction that will actually bring joy, true joy into your heart. In first Samuel 12 It actually helps us understand in 1 Samuel 12 what happened. And so if you want to flip over to 1 Samuel 12. Samuel actually kind of interprets what had just happened for them. He pans out because if you notice in the text, he doesn't go back to the Israelites and say, no, don't do that because you're rejecting God as your king. He doesn't do that. He just he goes to God and God says, tell him. I mean, you can warn him. But. Give them what they want. So Samuel pans out from the close up view that we've enjoyed in chapter eight to a bird's eye view. And he points out to them plainly that, yes, they sinned. He points out to them that, yes, they were wicked in their requests, but that they were learning that what they had sought out were empty things. Verse 19, that they couldn't profit or deliver them, that they could not profit from them or they could not be delivered by these empty things. They were empty. Verse 19 in chapter 12 and All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants, to the Lord, your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after the after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Do you see His goodness? Do you see His sovereignty over your treason? And lastly, I just want us to spend some time focusing on the true King over all traitors. Everyone in this world who's ever breathed the breath of life has been a traitor. They've committed high treason. But I want us to spend a moment as we start to prepare for the Lord's Supper. I want to draw our attention back to the true king over all traitors. Traitors. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, God allowed his people to sinfully pursue a king so that they could see that not only will their past fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, and so many more. Not only have they failed terribly, but their future kings were all going to fall woefully short. Even their best king, King David, had his face emblazoned on the wanted poster. He was a king who took Bathsheba Remember what the text said the kings would do? The king would take and take and take and take. And their best king they could put forward was David, who took Bathsheba. And not only that, to cover it up, he took the life of her husband, Uriah. And he brings us to the end of ourselves and our false kings and our terrible security blankets. And he shows us that there is only one true king. And he's calling all traitors to himself before it's too late. All along, the Israelites had the right king. They didn't embrace him as the king. And we know this king today is Jesus Christ, the king of all kings, the king of all real and fake kings. In Matthew 20, verse 28, it says the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. Our king is a God who serves. Not to he didn't come to be served, which is what all kings will do. He'll set up systems so that people will just serve him. Well, this king came to serve. And then it says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the king who gives. If you look at God's love for us in the New Testament, you see over and over and over again that he is the God who gives. For God to so love the world. How did he prove it? He gave his only begotten son. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the king that we need. The king that was being rejected in chapter 8 is the king that we need. And you will never stand in the presence of your false king. But if you did, you would find that he's impotent to bring you what you truly long for. You'll find that he certainly can't save and he certainly can't satisfy you. And you'll realize that it was all folly to cast all of your allegiance before him. But every one of us in this room will stand before the true king over all traitors. Can you see him standing before Pontius Pilate? And he's standing up on a platform of judgment. And there is Pilate and all of his splendid robes, garments. And there stands Jesus with the so-called kingly robe intended to mock him. And there's a crown of thorns that has been pressed upon his head. And he stands there with a huge, angry crowd An angry mob of cosmic traitors. And as he stands there, they are chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And Pontius Pilate hears the chanting and he says, why? This is a Jewish man. Why crucify him for he's done no wrong. Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, what? Shall I crucify your king? And their response. We have no king but Caesar. And there before our eyes, they rejected Jesus Christ as king over them. First Samuel chapter eight was not the first time that he had been rejected as king, and he knew what it felt like to be rejected. By the end of the book, the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. And then throughout the rest of the series, Edmund is actually seen to be a loyal courageous, logical, mature character. And by the end of the story, Edmund is called King Edmund the Just. And there was a turning point for Edmund. And it's the turning point that we all need to come face to face with the true king who will forgive all of our treason. And listen to this gem that C.S. Lewis gives us after Edmund had this private conversation with Aslan. Aslan. And then the witch, in the presence of so many witnesses, starts off. And she says, You have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself, after all he'd been through. And after the talk he'd had that morning. And he just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. Brothers and sisters. Let us keep on looking to Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us keep on looking at our true king. And there's not a better way. To celebrate this king over our treason, then to come to the one who said, "This is my body broken for you, and this is my blood poured out for you, so if you 're passing out communion, would you go ahead and come forward in a moment we 're going to take uh, a meal called the lord 's Supper and it's reserved for followers of Jesus who are in good standing with their church. And so if you would say that's you, then we welcome you to partake of the Lord's Supper. If it's not you, then we would ask that you just not take the bread and the juice. Jesus was consumed by death so that we would feast on him. This king is called the bread of life and the living water. And so that we might see that all of our longings for false kings, our hunger and our thirst would only be satisfied by Jesus. And we embrace this true king when we take the Lord's Supper. It's a way of saying we praise you and thank you for your good rule, your loving provision and your peaceful reign. And we cannot reach the end of that cistern. He is a well that will never run dry. And in him, we will certainly satisfy the longing underlying all of our desires, the longing for security and joy. And we will live long in the kingdom with the true king. Brothers, you can pass out the elements.